Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening thanking you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to gather together as the body of Christ, to have fellowship one with another, the fun that we have worshiping you, being together, and seeing the great things that you're doing in our own personal lives. And now we turn to the most important aspect of the service, and that is where we get to your inerrant, unfailing, uncompromising word, teaching us those important lessons that we need to live and need to have for our lives. We want to submit ourselves to your word. We ask that your spirit would now take the word of God and make application to our lives, that we might understand your plan through the ages, how you work through the children of Israel, and how you want to work today through us. We're so grateful, Father, that we have a time set aside where we can just take a chunk of the Word, a couple chapters at a time, and meditate upon these things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to take a two-door sedan and fill it full of luggage and put mom and dad and about ten kids under the age of ten in it, point it down the road about five to eight hundred miles, and then multiply that by thousands of times, you see the kind of predicament that Moses was in. Two and a half million people, all excited about being delivered, all excited about going on the trip, going to the promised land, but oh, a little bit down the road, sort of like the kids in the back of the car, Dad, I'm hungry. I need to go to the bathroom. I hate this trip. Why did we go on it? They begin complaining, and you're going to see it series of complaints in the next several weeks as we see the children of Israel being led by God at the hand of Moses. As you get to chapter 14, actually the latter part of 13, beginning of 14, you would think the casual observer might think that God is opposing himself. After all that he's done, with miraculous signs and wonders, delivering them across... uh, or from the hand of Pharaoh by ten miraculous plagues that got Pharaoh's attention and finally he says, okay, leave, by sending a uh, a cloud, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night to lead them. After all the things that God has done, only to trap them out in the wilderness, to bring them to a place where they were the most vulnerable, you'd say, this doesn't make any sense. Why would God spend all of that energy getting the Egyptians' attention, only to bring them to this point. Only to get them to the place where they could be boxed in. And of course, God is doing this, backing them into a corner to show God's power, faithfulness. That God can show you a way when there is no way. That even when you've run out of options, God has lots more. God is unlimited. You know, we often say, now God, there's a few ways I see how you can get me out of this problem. Here's the options as I see it. A, then there's B, and then of course, you probably wouldn't do this, but there's C. God says, yeah, but what about D, E, F, G, and H? In fact, I think I'll try Z. Something you've never thought of. Back in chapter 13, in verse 20, it says, They took their journeys from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, And the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night, 
He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, God is directing them. That pillar is what they are to follow. They're not really following Moses. They are following a miraculous sign, a wonder. It is unmistakable that God is leading them. However, God will not lead them to safety. God will lead them purposely into a predicament that will require miraculous intervention. Miracle after miracle will be shown to them so that they will just sit and be in awe in chapter 15 of what God has been doing in their lives. As we have said tonight and other times, God does things so differently than we would do them. We panic when things get out of our control. We like to be in control. We like change as long as it's calculated and we initiate it. Things get out of our control and we think, it's all, it's all over. And then we start counseling the Lord. Now Paul said, who has known the mind of the Lord that we should be his counselor? Now we have filled that position many times. We said, now God, um, you blew it yesterday. I had it all figured out how you could work. You didn't do it. Now you got one last chance, as I see it, to really make it right, to really do something wonderful. And here's your chance right here. God may not pay attention at all. In fact, I find God rarely pays attention to my counsel. He pays attention to my prayers as I submit myself humbly to Him. But I always like to live by the motto, Father knows best. And the children of Israel are learning the same. The Lord, verse 1, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. If uh, you were part of this gang and you were plotting your course, you would no doubt, and you can refer to the map, choose that beach route, that northern route that goes by the sea, known as the Via Maris, or the Seaway. It would take you along the coast, up the Gaza Strip, into Philistine country. That's the quickest route. It's about 100, 120 miles into Canaan. The one place you would not go, if you were mapping out your deliverance, is south. And that's exactly where God leads them. South and then over to the uh, east to go across the Red Sea and go through the wilderness that way. And so he tells them where to camp. He gives them detailed instructions in verse 2. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, for the wilderness has closed them in. If we were able to transport ourselves topographically as well as geographically, you would see that they were led into a cul-de-sac, the most vulnerable spot militarily. The only way out is the way in. Uh, to the right and to the left, if you were in this group, you would see mountain ranges and a vast wilderness. And ahead of you, you would see the Red Sea. And as soon as you would get there, you'd probably ask the question, uh, Mo, are you sure we're in the right place? And of course, Moses would say, hey, God led us by this crazy pillar of cloud and fire. Of course it's the right place. This is the move of God. But you'd be trying to figure out, why did God do this? This doesn't make any sense. And it'll make less sense in just a minute. 
God says in his instruction to this leader, verse 4, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And he did so. You see, these Egyptians are still not totally convinced. You would think, listening to Pharaoh, boy, he's convinced. He says, go, serve the Lord, get away from me. And they spoiled the Egyptians. But still within his heart, the path that he has chosen, that God now makes firm in hardening that heart, is one of obstinance and uncertainty. It's funny how a lapse of time or a span of time will mar our memory, erase lessons that we have just learned. You can learn a lesson and think you've got it down for good only to be tested in the future and you act the same way you did the first time. Because you forget. It's not as fresh in your memory as it once was. Now it was told, verse 5, the king of Egypt, that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the captains over them, over each one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Now the Hebrew word for harden is chetzak, which means to make firm or to strengthen, something we made reference to in the past studies. Chetzak is a word that means once the decision has been made, the path has been chosen, God will come along and make firm the decision that the person has made. So that if a person firms up his own heart by his own volition and says, I will fight against God, I will be disobedient and obstinate, God will come along and chetzak, firm that up even further. He will strengthen your resolve. And I also believe that if Pharaoh would have said, I choose to humble myself and... I will make firm my decision to follow the Lord, God of Israel, that God would have also hardened or made firm the decision to follow the Lord. But he didn't do that. He had a self-determined plan of resistance. And so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pihahirot, and before Baal Zephon. The firstborn of Pharaoh is dead. Pharaoh is quite upset. He has a vengeful anger, you might say. On top of that, two and a half million slaves, his entire workforce, is leaving. And it kind of dawns on him. He realizes, wait a minute. Two and a half, my slaves are gone. What am I going to do? They built my cities, they built my walls and fortresses, and they split. My son is dead. What have I to live for? I'm going to go get him. He thinks they're lost because he looks at where they're going. It's been told, hey, they're by Pihairot, let's chase them down. He thinks, that's a stupid way to go. Why would they go south? The easiest way is for them to go north along the seaway, up by the Gaza Strip. 
So they must be hedged in by the wilderness. They're in a trap. They're vulnerable. I'll show them. Actually, God will show him. It's all a plot by God, destined to give God the ultimate glory and to wipe out the enemies of his people. Notice in verse 7 the word captains, the word captains. That is a Hebrew word for the third men or the third man of a team. The literal translation is the third man. And the idea is probably within every chariot there were three men. Gives you a little bit of insight into their military structure. One man would be the driver. And then behind him on either side would be a warrior that would fight. So one would drive exclusively, just watching where he's going at the direction of the captain, the third man of the chariot, who would be the one uh, who would be one of the warriors behind him. That's the idea here. And when Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians march after them. So they were very afraid or filled with fear, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Just as they are camping and beginning to wonder, did we get our directions right? There's a body of water in front of us. We're hedged in by mountains and wilderness. I guess the best way is the way out. Probably just as they're turning around contemplating this, they see the dust of the armies of Egypt rising in the horizon. And they think, oh, we're really in trouble. They begin to panic. They begin to look at the Egyptians and cry out to the Lord. Their problem was... Instead of using the eye of faith to look at the Lord, they looked at the problem. Now, you can understand this. We don't want to be too harsh on them. I think if you and I were in their situation, we'd do the same thing. God help! But the basic problem is a refusal to hear the promises of God and view Him by faith and the willingness to grasp, to embrace the worst possible scenario. I think you know people like this. Whenever any possibility arises, they see the worst possible thing that could happen. They paint the worst possible picture. I know what's going to happen. It's, it's just the... And it's, they're draining sometimes to be around. Moses is going to be drained during this 40 years. It's amazing that he even makes it to the other end. And their view now is on the Egyptians. They know that they're trapped. And so they cry out to the Lord. Folks, the only cure for fear is to keep your eye upon the Lord. Remember that was Peter's problem. Peter said, hey, Lord, tell me to walk. Uh, you're walking on the water. I'd like to try that. That looks fun. Just command me. I'd like to do it. Peter, go for it. Come. Peter starts walking. What happens? He has his eye on the Lord. It's great doing it. But then he starts noticing and starts thinking and calculating logically rather than theologically a little bit too much. He says, you know, it's impossible for humans to walk on water and besides that, these waves are pretty high. I think I'm in trouble. And he cried out to the Lord to help him. The children of Israel have their eye on the problem and the potential devastation rather than on God. And we notice in verse 10, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. This is not a prayer of faith. 
It's a prayer of complaint. It's a panicked prayer. It was the same problem the disciples had, the same predicament. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Can you imagine asking God that question? God, don't you care? As if God's going to say, no, I don't. You know God better than that. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Now Jesus told the disciples, let's go over to the other side. They didn't hear that part. They thought they were going under. Jesus said, we'll go over. If they only would have, instead of flipping out, they would have thought, wait a minute, Jesus said we're going over. If he said we're going over, there's no way we can go under. Lord, don't you care that we perish? Now God had promised the children of Israel, and you will come and worship me on this mountain, Mount Horeb. He told that to Moses. Well, if you've got a promise that God will lead you from point A to point B, there's no way you're going to perish in between. There's no way you're going to die in the wilderness, no matter how bad it gets. But they cried unto the Lord, and of course we can relate to this. Folks, when faith is not used, the promises of God bring no comfort. There is an important scripture that speaks to this era of Israel's history in the book of Hebrews. It says, the children of Israel also had the promises of God, but they failed not mixing them with faith. And when you stare at the scriptures, and you don't take those scriptures and apply faith to the promises of God, they are of no comfort at all. I have stared into the eyes of so many different people at funerals and I have shared the promises of God and I can tell instantly who grasps the promises of God and who doesn't. I've stared into empty eyes when I talk about eternal life and the promises of heaven, just bewildered like, this is nonsense. And I've stared into the eyes of people who, though they have great sorrow, they don't sorrow like people who are hopeless. They have that spark of, I know that's true. Though I sorrow now, I know I'll be united in heaven with that loved one. Then they said to Moses, now, now listen carefully and try to put yourself in Moses' shoes, or his sandals, I should say. Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt. Isn't this not the word which we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Listen to those stinging, ungrateful words. We should have just left us alone. It would be better to be a slave, beaten every day, having to make those cities, than we should be out here in the wilderness and die. Really? Well, that's not what you guys said a little while back, a few months ago, you cried out for deliverance. You asked that God would send you a deliverer. You prayed and you begged. But as soon as they're in a problem situation, a crisis, they want to go back. Let's go back to Egypt. Now this is a complaint you will hear repetitively through the book of Exodus. Wish we would have just been in Egypt. There was more food in Egypt. Better cuisine. More water. All we have is Manna out here. You'll see that complaint next week. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? After seeing ten plagues, after seeing a pillar of fire and a cloud by day, after seeing the 
predicament that they're in and having the promises of God, knowing that they've been fulfilled in the past, after all that God has done, they cry out and complain. How fickle. How much like us. How often we are like this, are we not? As I read these words, I don't want to chide these people too much. I feel for Moses, definitely, but at the same time, I think if I were in that situation, I probably would do the same thing. I know my own nature, my propensity to look at things much like they did. C.H. McIntosh said, 10,000 mercies are forgotten in the presence of a single trifling moment. You know, it's all how you look at things, isn't it? Perspective is everything. The children of Israel saw the worst scenario. You remember uh, later on, I shouldn't say you remember. If you haven't read Exodus, you wouldn't remember. If you have, you will. As they get to Kadesh Barnea, which is the spying out place, the sending out place for the children of Israel, 12 spies go into the land, Joshua, Caleb, and 10 others. They all come back. Joshua and Caleb have glowing reports. God has given us the land. Let's go for it. Ten other spies have a different story. There's big guys, giants. There's no way we could do the fortified cities. Forget it. See, it's all you look at things. They saw the same thing. Joshua and Caleb saw a big God and little giants. The ten spies and eventually the rest of Israel saw a little God and big giants. They saw the same thing, but they reported it very differently. Some brought a good report, some brought a bad report. You know that a very small object has the ability to conceal great power if that object is held close enough in perspective. I could take a, um, well, I won't use the gum wrapper. I could take a sheet of paper. And this small sheet of paper, oh, what is this, five by seven just about, has the ability to conceal the sun even though the sun, if you were to put this next to the sun, in comparison, this would be so tiny you'd never be able to see it. And yet, this tiny little object can conceal that great source of power. Here's how. I can't see anything as long as it's that close. And we do that with God. We kind of shove God way, way out there. Oh, He's so far removed. He's so busy. And we bring our problem right here. And we can't see anything of God's deliverance because our problem is always ever before us. It's all a matter of perspective. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. Do not be afraid is something that God gave to several people throughout the Bible, to Abraham when he made the covenant. He said, Abraham, don't be afraid. Fear not. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. To Joshua, as they were crossed over and they were going to take the land, he said, Joshua, don't be afraid. To Solomon, Solomon, don't be afraid. To Gideon, who was about to fight the Midianites, and he was this lonely little guy on the threshing floor of Israel, he said, Gideon, don't be afraid. And it's a message that still goes out today. First of all, don't flip out. Your life, if it is surrendered to God, is still in His control. He has not forgotten about you. Oh, but I feel trapped. You know what? God may have trapped you. 
to show you that He has resources you haven't even thought of. God may have allowed you to be in this predicament, in fact, led you into that predicament. So that when you feel backed into a corner, God can go, have you ever thought of this? And then He can do something completely out of the ordinary. Don't rule that out. Do not be afraid. And then He says, stand still. Can you imagine how hard that would be to hear in this predicament? You're boxed in the Red Sea and Egyptians are coming closer, closer, faster, faster. Hey, relax, chill. Stand still. What? Now is not the time to stand still, pal. What is our natural response whenever we are in a predicament where that box gets tighter and tighter more quickly? It's to figure a way out of it quickly. You want to get involved in your own deliverance. Now, there's a point where you need to do that. You just don't sit back and veg. I think you need to cooperate with what God is doing. But the, the tendency is to get so involved that no matter what, you want to pry your way out of this situation at all costs. In doing so, you may be fighting against the will of God. God may have something better in store through His deliverance. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You remember Sarah? Old lady. Can't get pregnant. God says, you're going to have a son. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> That's really neat. That's sweet, spiritual. Yeah, right on. I'll even underline that one. When it came down to it, she didn't believe his promise. She laughed at it. She went to her husband, Abraham, when he says, Honey, look, I know you trust God and you've been following this voice for a long time, but you're no spring chicken. And look at me. I'm way over the hill when it comes to childbearing. I think what God meant, Abraham, is for you to do it another way. Let's help God out a little bit. Take Hagar, my handmaid. Go in, get her pregnant. And we'll call that child our own. We'll treat that child like it's our own. It'll be our baby. It's not what God said. God said, Sarah, you out of your own womb, you're going to have a kid. But when we get into a situation, we don't want to stand still. We want to get busy. We want to help God out a little bit. And sometimes it can be to our undoing. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You know, it's what's interesting about verses 13 and 14. He says, stand still, the Lord will fight for you. You will hold your peace. Moses does not explain the situation. He just gives them a premise. This is what God is going to accomplish. I mean, here we are, boxed in, God must have something awesome. So just sit back. What else are you going to do? You're going to turn around and fight the Egyptians? They've got chariots. They've got armed men. You guys have been a pack of slaves for years. You're going to turn around and fight? Just stand still. You can't do anything else. You can't go right, left, or forward. Hang out. How was Moses able to have such faith? Two ways. Hindsight. And secondly, insight. Think of it. 
He's boxed in. But in his mind, he probably goes back to the time he stood before a burning bush and the bush talked to him. And the time when the Nile River turned to blood and the time that lice fell over the cattle and boils and locusts and frogs and all of those plagues. And he looked back and saw the history of all that God had done. And he thought, now, why would God do all of that only to have me killed here when God said we are going to inherit a land of milk and honey? God would not have done all of that just to see me kill here. He must have something in store. So with hindsight, I'll just say, relax. Secondly, insight. You see, God had spoken. We just read about it. God had spoken to Moses all that would happen. Moses, this is what's going to happen. Follow this cloud over to Pihayiroth and camp there by the sea. Pharaoh is going to think you're boxed in. He's going to chase you, but I'll deliver you. He had been in close contact with God, and when a person makes frequent encounters with God, his faith grows. The further a person stays away from God, the more fear will fill his life. A person who has frequent encounters with God and maintains a close, intimate, daily relationship with God will be a person who won't get all panicked. And I'll tell you when this will come in handy. Maintain a close, intimate relationship with the Lord when you approach in your life a crisis time. You'll see, ooh, did this pay off. This relationship of intimacy with the Lord, this abiding relationship, it really pays off now at this time of crisis. Looking back and having insight into the situation through the Word of God helps me to go forward. Now, Moses didn't know how God was going to deliver the children of Israel. He didn't say, you know, children of Israel, chill out, relax. Uh, let me draw a diagram of what God's about to do. You see, these waters are going to abate. and he didn't, do, he didn't know. He didn't know how. He just knew that God would somehow do it. He had no explanation. I don't know. Just relax. Let's learn to wait on the Lord. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now, it could be that Moses, after hearing them and calming them down, turned to the Lord and said, God, help. And God said, what are you praying for? Or when he said, why do you cry to me? He was speaking to Moses, who represented the entire children of Israel, who were then complaining to the Lord. But God says, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Only when we learn how to stand still are we able to go forward. There are so many times when we should be standing still and we're moving. We don't know if we're going forward, backwards, or sideways, but we're just we're going to go somewhere. It's a time when we should stand still. But there are other times when instead of standing still, we should go forward. You know, there's a time to pray. And there's a time to move. God is saying, Moses, now is not the time to cry out to me and pray. Now's the time to get moving. Now's the time to watch me work. So he tells them to go forward. And then he says in verse 16, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. The deliverance was theirs. 
they had to now go forward. And uh, there's a sort of an interesting thing about this. There are some times when we as Christians are striving to attain something we already have. The Bible says God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. They're ours. And yet here we are praying and striving for what is already ours. There's a great story about William Randolph Hearst, one of the uh, uh, most famous millionaires in American history, has had Hearst Castle when he was alive in uh, California, San Simeon. And uh, he was quite an art collector. He wanted the eccentric and the unique art pieces of the world, and he, he spent his life trying to accumulate them. And he had heard of one particular painting that he wanted more than anything else. He said, I must have that work of art. And he sent out his men to search the world over in every museum to find out where it was and to buy it at any, any price. They came back after months and they said, we have found it. It has been in your storage areas all along. Here he was trying to have something he already owned. And many times we as Christians are, oh Lord, I need this and I need, you already have it. You just need to appropriate it to walk by faith. Step, now walk, go forward. There seems to be indication, by the way, that this Red Sea didn't open all at once. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. It could be that it opened one step at a time. Move forward. And of course, that was definitely the case as uh, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River. It was at flood season. They had to walk in. Their ankles got wet. Their knees got wet. And they just kept walking in the water. And it wasn't until their feet hit the water that that thing started opening up. You need to go forward. You need to take the first step. And then God will give you light for the next step. You need to appropriate what is already yours. Sometimes we think, I'm just going to wait till it's all spelled out. No, just take one step. And then God will give you light for the next step. Sort of like witnessing to people. Oh God, please give me the boldness to witness. You think, well, I never felt this passionate desire to share the gospel with that person. So I guess God didn't answer my prayer. He must not call me as an evangelist. Baloney. Step out. Be bold. And as you step out by faith, watch how the Spirit of God comes along and empowers you. As you make that first step. The Bible says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. One step, not the city blocks of a righteous man. God doesn't say, okay, now look way in the distance and I'll open it all up for you and you can see the other side. That's not a walk of faith. Walk of faith is see the sea, start walking. And it could open up slowly as you go. Lift up your rod, stretch out your hand, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground as through the midst of the sea. Verse 17, And indeed I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will follow them, so I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army, his chariots, his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them, so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all night. The pillar was light to Israel, and it was darkness to the Egyptians, very much like the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It is offensive to the unbeliever. It is precious to the believer. It brings light. It brings joy. It brings freedom into another. They're hardened against it, and it's darkness. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, I don't know if you have a hang-up with this or not. I don't. I've always said that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, the rest will be easy. Oh, I don't know. The, rest, I just, the sea opening up, standing, I can't believe that. Well, go back to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty good trick. And if God can do that and speak it into existence, is it really too tough for God to make the water stand up and abate so the children of Israel could go across as by dry ground? That Sunday school story that you may have heard, a little boy comes back home from Sunday school and says, Mom, Sunday school was great today. Really enjoyed it. Really? Well, what would you learn? Oh, we learned all about the Red Sea crossing. Really, son? Tell me uh, what you learned. Well, this is how the teacher explained it to us. Actually, what really happened is that uh, they approached the Red Sea and they were caught in a trap. And so the Israeli Air Force came and strafed the Egyptian army that was behind them. And uh, it caused a, a huge uh, commotion, so they retreated. And then uh, the Army Corps of Engineers from the Israelis came in and built this huge bridge over the Red Sea rapidly as the strafing continued and the tanks moved in and the children of Israel walked across this bridge that was quickly erected. And she, with great puzzlement, looked at him and said, Is that what your teacher taught you in Sunday school? said, no, Mom, but if I told you what she said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> See, for some people to just take this simple story by faith, it's like, oh, I could never believe that. Yeah, it'd be easier for us to give men the credit that they could do something that amazing. Moses stretched out his hand, verse 21, over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea, on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now is the point of no return. The children of Israel have burned all their bridges, so to speak. The old life in Egypt is gone. They are in the midst of the sea. There's no turning back. There's Egyptians on one side. The safest route is forward. That's exactly how it ought to be for us. When you make a commitment to Jesus Christ, you make a total commitment. You sever the past. You burn all your bridges. You don't say, I'll follow Christ if it doesn't work out. I can always go back. Wish I could go back to Egypt. No, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become new. It's a point of no return. We notice here that the Egyptians pursued and went after them. Well, they won't be able to follow them very far. The unbeliever can never follow the believer. They will be consumed. The unbeliever, no matter how hard he tries, can never follow in the same footsteps as a Christian unless he becomes a Christian. These people are walking, the Egyptians are walking by sight. The children of Israel are walking by faith. The Egyptians will be consumed. The Israelis will be delivered. 
Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels. <laughs> God sabotaged them. I love it. So that they drove with difficulty. You know, that's something I would have done as a teenager, and here God is doing it to the Egyptians. I just think it's neat. He took off their chariot wheels. They drove with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now what happens in the next couple of verses, verses 26 and 20 through 28, is the pivotal point, the hinge of the entire history of Israel. From this point on, these verses 26 through 28 become the point of reference for the rest of Israel's history. They will always point back to the time when God delivered them through the Red Sea and swallowed up the Egyptians. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots, on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared or reverenced the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And keep in mind, God had deliberately wedged them in that he might show his glory. He wants to deliver the children of Israel. He did that, number one. Number two, he wanted to judge the gods of Egypt. He did that. Three, he wanted to glorify himself in the sight of Israel and the Egyptians. And number four, he wanted to substantiate his servant Moses before the eyes of the children of Israel. They panic. They cry out to Moses. Moses says, chill out. Watch God work. The sea opens up. They go across by faith. The waters come back. And all of those works had been done in that moment. Now before we jump into chapter 15, I want to just sort of sum up chapter 14 with a few thoughts. I want to apply this to our lives. It's great history. It's awesome as we behold the wonders of God. But what does it mean to us? Here's a lesson. Tight places, places of affliction, when you're boxed in, those places and during those times will expose and reveal your real relationship with God. There is no better test than affliction. They reveal the true colors. People say, oh yeah, I, I by faith claim this and claim that. You know, it's easy to trust God when all the cupboards are full and everybody's healthy. When life takes a turn and you got nothing, do you still look and say, I trust the Lord? The tight places expose our relationship with God and our character. Secondly, 
God will sometimes put us into tight places to take the word impossible out of our vocabulary. I'm in an impossible situation. What good could ever come out of this? There's nothing left to do but pray. God says, that's right. That's why you're there, to show you that nothing is impossible for the Lord. And God has resources you know nothing of. A third lesson for us is that tight places like this show us that God has His own agenda, His own timetable. You are not God's boss. You cannot go around and claim this and command God to do that. God does what He wants when He wants it. Seas open up, but not until you learn your lesson. And when you've learned your lesson, then God will do what He wants to do when He wants to do it. But it shows that God does not punch our time clock. He has His own agenda. Number four, in tight places, where do you usually look? When everything is gone, every resource, where do you, where do you look usually? Up. You've got nowhere else to go. Tight places cause us to look up to the Lord for deliverance. And perhaps that's the greatest benefit of them. We should be looking up there all the time and have our eyes and focus on God, but when all the resources are stripped, it's then that we start seeing God. We look beyond ourselves. That's why C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in all of our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our affliction. Pain is the megaphone, he said, to rouse a sleeping world. Now chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the first recorded song in all of the Bible. It's a song of deliverance. It's a song of grateful people. And they are really probably singing this song with all of their hearts. They put all of their voices and everything into it. In fact, they're going to do a little dance in this chapter. And as excited as their worship is, a little bit down the path they're going to be complaining again. Same people who sang, yeah, God is great. They're going to be complaining and yelling at Moses and saying, why did God do this? And they'll be angry and they'll live by unbelief. There are a couple of things in this song I want you to notice. There are important principles for true worship. And the first thing I want you to notice as we go through this song of Moses, as it's called, is the focus is upon God, as should be in all true worship. The focus should not be on the musicians. shouldn't be on the beat. It should be on the Lord. There are similes I want you to notice in this Song of Moses. In verse 5, like a stone. It's very descriptive. Verse 8, like a wall. And verse 10, like lead when they sank. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, Moses was skilled or trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, which probably included the arts. As we read this song, it shows that Moses had quite a knack with the ability to put descriptive words together, poetically and no doubt musically. And then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Notice the first word, then. Then they sang. When? After they were delivered. They had no songs that they sang in Egypt. There was no joy for them in Egypt. They were in bondage. But now the deliverance has come and they sing to the Lord. Christian, you ought to sing to the Lord. I cannot imagine a songless Christian. 
You've got a lot to sing about. God has delivered you from hell. Oh yeah, that's kind of neat. Neat? That's awesome. Hey, when songs come your way in a song service, put all you got into them. Sing them unto the Lord. Put your heart into it. God has delivered you from your bondage. Notice it says also in that verse, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. You'll notice in this song, 12 times in 18 verses, the word Lord appears. The focus is upon God. Moses is not mentioned once. Isn't that neat? Now here's Moses, think of it. He's quite an instrument of God. Remember, he stretched out his hand and saw the waters open up. His rod. He was able to move his hand sort of like a wand with all those plagues. You know, if you had that kind of power displayed in your life with your hands, it could tend to make a person puffed up. You might touch somebody in their heel and you might think, pretty neat hands. I am a vessel of God. Well, that's true, but you're just a vessel of God. You're not the source, you're the instrument. How ludicrous it is to praise the instrument. What would you do? What would a physician think if after surgery, a successful surgery, the doctor came in and said, you know, the operation was successful, you're going to live. And he said, doctor, would you show me the scalpel with which you performed the operation? Yeah, I guess, sure. Nurse, you get that scalpel? Comes in with a scalpel, gives it to you, and you go, oh, mighty scalpel. You are so awesome. Thank you for what you have done. Doctor said, uh, excuse me, this was just a tool. I did the work. How ludicrous it is to lift up human beings and say, oh, you're so awesome. No, you're not. You're a peon that God in His grace decided to use. God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the Bible says, to confound the wise. Why? Finish the text. That no flesh would glory in His presence. God doesn't want to share His glory with any human instrument. And Moses realizes that. Yeah, I'm just an instrument. In fact, I was the guy who stood at the burning bush and said, I can't do it. And you're right. He can't do it. God did it. And so the song is filled with God, not Moses. How different. 20th century man is. Read a history book. And I'd like you to find a history book in any secular school that mentions God or God's power in positive light, giving God the credit for great things that have been done. You won't find one, but you'll see men hailed for their achievements. Ask a person, well, what have you done? Tell me about your achievements. Yeah, he'll you know, well, let me tell you about myself. Not Moses. Moses said, the Lord has done great things. You might want to give yourself a little test in this. How often in a conversation do the words I, mine, me come up versus what God has done or saying, thank you, Lord. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. It's time we learn that. Moses learned it. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise Him. He's my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord has become my salvation. This is the mega miracle, folks, that they will always refer to. Jethro, in a few chapters, chapter 18, says, Oh, we have heard of the things that God has done. The Midianites, the Canaanites, when they cross over, 40 years later, still remember 
hearing about this mega miracle. Verse 3, interesting verse. The Lord is a man of war. At least in this section, he's not a pacifist. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the seas. Chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You set forth your wrath, which consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap, and the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Something that you should tuck away either in your notes or in your mind. And that's the word anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism is a word or they are a group of words that help finite man comprehend infinite God. God is incomprehensible unless he condescends to reveal himself to us in human language. And so he does. And you see one here. The blast of your nostrils. That's an anthropomorphism. God is put in human language so that we can understand. Picturesque, colorful language. The Psalms are filled with them. The eyes of the Lord. The wings of our Lord. It doesn't mean that God has feathers or that he has real wings. These are picturesque anthropomorphisms to describe the character or activity of God. So you'll see that throughout the Bible. The enemy said, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia or Palestine, Palestina. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All of the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Now these are great words of faith. What they are saying is all that has happened to the Egyptians is preparing us for the enemies we're going to face later on, i.e. the Edomites, the Canaanites. But give them a few weeks. They will change their tune. They won't be singing, Yeah, God did it so he can do it again. They're going to say, there's giants in the land. Uh, I don't want to go. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this big God gets shrunken in their eyes, and their problems get so big. Tune sounds good now. How often in church we sing great hymns of faith, and we get out and we reverse the tune. Oh, I trust you for anything. And then your car won't start. Oh, I can't believe it. God has forsaken me. Oh, really? You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. He's speaking prophetically. 
of the tabernacle which will be erected at Shiloh and eventually the temple which will be built in Jerusalem. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them. In other words, they would sing and there would be a refrain. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. How beautiful that must have been. I can't help but believe that God just enjoys true worship. I know, I imagine that when we sing songs, and they're really from our hearts, that God is, is blessed. He sits back where whatever you picture that as or where whatever capacity that is, but he's enjoying it. It blesses his heart to see his children bringing worship to him. He loves true worship, worship that is from the heart. And here they are, singing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. I'm sure they sang that with great emotion, don't you? Don't be afraid of showing emotion. Dancing unto the Lord out in the wilderness, they had something to dance about. Now, if we were to dance inside this church, we'd be, well, why don't we dance? Well, it's already crowded. It would be pandemonium. There's time and a place for everything, and it seems that the best place is like when we're out at a Fourth of July picnic and there's room to do it, and it's done in an environment that isn't crazy or weird, but it glorifies the Lord. True worship, true emotion is good. On the other hand, emotionalism, for the sake of emotionalism, I don't think glorifies God at all. There's some people that they pump you. You gotta, you gotta, you know, clap and jump and shout and. And some people in their worship don't draw attention to the Lord, but they draw attention to themselves. They want to sing louder than everybody else, or stand up in such a way that they're noticed more than the Lord would be noticed. An unbeliever or even a believer would look at that and say, oh, I noticed that person, rather than, I noticed the Lord. And the motivation is very important. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, located there east of Egypt, northwest part of the Sinai Peninsula. They went three days into the wilderness. Uh-oh, they found no water. Oh, big trial. Trial number two. Trial number one. The Egyptians are behind them. They're trapped. Trial number two, they're in the desert, and there is no water. And back in Egypt, plenty of water. The Nile River, cisterns dug out into the rock, an abundance of supply. Now they have nothing. And what do they do? Do they trust the Lord? Well, they've got a lot of reason to, but they don't. Well, let's go on. I had some things to say. We'll go on. Then they came to Marah means bitter in Hebrew. They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, bitter. Makes sense. And the people murmured against who? Moses. Poor Moses. He's just been obedient to God. 
But he's the instrument, and he's the visible instrument of God. They can't see invisible God, so they take it out on the guy who's leading them. Murmured against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? Figure it out for us, Mo. Remember something, folks. God led them to Marah. Right? The whole time they have this divine guidance system. God deliberately led them to a place where there was no water. It was in God's agenda to bring them to this bitter place. And I believe that in every Christian life there is a Mara, or two or three. That in your pathway, Christian, it's not just mighty deliverances, but there is a place of bitterness. It might be a tiny little grave in a cemetery. It might be an affliction that you are experiencing yourself, maybe even in your own body. God may deliver you miraculously from that, but I believe just as there is a deliverance from Egypt, there is also a Mara. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. The word is thalipsis in Greek, to be pressed together, sometimes above measure. I think also that this is descriptive of what happens to every new believer. They're so excited about the deliverance of God from sin. They're saved. They're singing all these songs, great emotion. And all of a sudden, that little bubble pops. They don't feel the same anymore. They've been saved now a few months, and they come and they say, I don't feel the same anymore. I wonder if I'm saved. I feel sort of dry. I come out in the desert. And that, that, that intense feeling that I once had, I don't have that feeling anymore. Why? What's happened to me? Almost every Christian I've met goes through that experience of dryness. Sometimes it happens frequently. It's because, Christian, God wants you to live by faith, not by that feeling. That ooey-gooey warm feeling. As long as that feeling is there, oh, I know God is near. But that feeling's gone. Is God gone? No. God promised He'll never leave or forsake you. That's a promise you have to trust. And God seeks to wean every believer. And He weans us, I think, through dry areas. Israel grumbled against Moses. Actually, they grumble against the Lord, as we're going to see in the next few chapters. God says, Moses, don't worry, they're really murmuring against me. So now Moses, verse 25, he cries out to the Lord. <laughs> you would too. And the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And he said, if you diligently heed my voice, or the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments... Keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The waters are bitter. He has shown a tree. I can't help but think of the cross of Jesus Christ, which makes every bitter life sweet. God will show you a tree. Your life might be totally messed up. It's bitter. It's filled with your own ways. It's packed full of sin. You cry out to the Lord, God says, there's a tree. It's the cross of my son. You cast yourself upon him, and he will make your life sweet. He'll give you purpose and meaning. He may or may not deliver you in the way you think, but God will show you his grace and extend his mercy. Now God says in verse 26, you keep all these commandments, none of these diseases which I brought on the Egyptians. I've heard that verse, I think, abused by some time or for some time by many people. The idea is 
the plagues that came upon the Egyptian, those ten plagues, especially the boils that were upon their body as part of the judgment of God. Obey me. These things aren't going to happen. I won't have to discipline you in the same way. Of course, you could even take that beyond that. Because in a few chapters, he's going to give them a health code. Things you should eat, things you shouldn't eat. Don't poison your body. And the idea of kosher and non-kosher foods was especially for health issues, as well as spiritual reasons. The idea of not eating mollusks because their ability to shed poisons during seasons was very important, so God just forbade it completely. Verse 27, hey, we made it. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. I imagine that would look pretty good to those guys out there in the desert. Just a little bit of water and palm trees. You know, there's something about seeing palm trees in the middle of the desert. Just like, ah, oh, there's life here. There's water here. Refreshment. And so they camp there by the waters. Another lesson. You might be going through Mara right now, but God has an Elim for you in the future. You're not going to always be at that place of bitterness. God will give you a place of refreshment in the future. God has deliverance for us, His people. He took them out of Egypt, enslavement. He made them His people. They complain, but they were still His people. And God loved them, and God treasured them above all peoples, and God was committed to them. And it's still true that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus paid the price. We must confess our sin. God will make a way into heaven. That sea will open up. And we'll be his children, but we have to come by faith. There's a story of an orphan boy who was being raised by his grandmother. Their house caught on fire in the neighborhood. A couple of houses were burning. Tragically, in the fire, the grandmother died because of the flame. She was trying to rescue her grandson. She was unable in the attempt, and she died. And that orphan was crying out of his upstairs window, Save me, help. A man outside, a neighbor, heard it, climbed up the iron drain pipe into the room, saved the boy, grabbing tightly to his body, and his other hand on the drain pipe climbed down. Later on, after the mess had cleared, there was a court hearing as to who would raise this child, who would have the custody rights for this uh, little boy. There were several people in town who wanted to adopt him. There was a farmer, there was a grocer, and also the wealthiest citizen in the town, a family, wanted to adopt this little child, and they all brought their reasons as to why they could provide for this child and what they would do for the child and so forth. Each time these three people appeared in court and gave their reasons why they should have custody, that little boy just hung his head just going through with it. He really didn't want to be raised by any, any of them. His grandmother was dead. He didn't know any of these people. They meant well, but he didn't know them. From the back of the courtroom, finally a man walked forward, he took his hands slowly out of his pockets and showed them to the people in the courtroom. And there were burn marks from that hot iron pipe that he had grabbed onto climbing up and down, saving that little boy. Suddenly, when that little boy saw that man's face and those scars on his hands, he ran to the man and put his head in his shoulders and embraced him. 
the three people who wanted to have custody silently walked out of the courtroom. Those scarred hands settled the case. He was eligible. His scars proved his love. He paid the price for that little boy. And that little boy was given to that man to be raised. Jesus Christ has the proof in his own hands, the scars on his own body, that demonstrates his love to you more than anybody else. But you've got to let him have control of your life if you don't already. And it sort of settles all the issue. To whom do you belong? Well, God made you, and then Jesus paid the price to save you. That should settle the issue. You should run to him tonight like that little boy did to that man. And let him deliver you from slavery. And let him care for you as you become a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this deliverance was not earned by the Egyptians. It was a gift of God. They didn't merit it. But you love them. You, by a great hand, delivered them. None of us tonight, Lord, merit or deserve your goodness, your salvation. I suppose that's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. None of us can stake a claim as to earning it. Lord, you just love us. For whatever reasons are yours, you just love us. You loved us enough to have that man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, come to this earth, and he's got scars in his hands to prove that he loved us more than anybody else. And he alone has the power to deliver us and make any bitter life sweetened by that sacrifice on the cross. I pray, Father, tonight that we would be people, <coughs> people of faith who trust you, people who cling to you, who sing songs of faith, songs of deliverance, and that those songs mean something the rest of the week besides Sundays, that we'd live by them and not change our tune later on. And Father, we pray for those who have come tonight in our assembly who have never had a personal relationship with the man who has those scars in his hands, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would now convince them of their need to make a decision, a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 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 their Lord and Savior.